Welcome to ASM Connected, the podcast brought to you by ASM Technologies. In every episode, we explore the emerging trends and tech within the industry and meet key speakers, futurists and business leaders from across the globe. In this episode, ASM Technologies' Ian Tomkinson and Stephen Dale meet Brett Fanouf, the president of the Submergence Group and managing director of the Mayflower Autonomous Ship. Brett was also a top 10 innovator to watch in 2021, according to Smithsonian. Brett discusses how the Mayflower project came about, the challenges faced with the ocean environment, collaboration between tech partners on the project, his vision of autonomous ships for the future, and how AI has developed across the marine industry. This is ASM Connected. Brett, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm really looking forward to this one today. Based on the themes of what our podcast series is about this time, I've got a feeling that this really does cover all the aspects and will sum up really well everything that we've been trying to bring into the conversation. And I know, Ian, you're looking forward to it as well. Absolutely, yeah. Um, we obviously, uh, innovation is something that we spend a lot of time talking about. And as soon as I saw this story, I've been following it and it's been absolutely fascinating for me, bringing some of my uh, passions of innovation together, plus also the sea and boating. So yeah, absolutely, really fascinating. I'm looking forward to the chat. So that you don't get too carried away and excited, Ian, I've got a bit of a structure. We'll be touching on our usual themes of emerging technology and innovation, as you've mentioned. And we also usually talk about agility in one way or another. And thinking about the sort of story at hand here with technology battling against the Atlantic Ocean, I think that agility conversation could potentially take several different routes. So, Ian, I'll leave it up to you to get cracking straight on with the questions. Great. Thanks, Steve. So, Brett, I suppose just to warm us up and with a really, really simple question, I've been following the story of the Mayflower Autonomous Ship, and we'll dive into that project and your experience with that in a moment. But I suppose to start us off, I just wanted to try and ask a very, very simple question of what does innovation mean to you? Oh, wow. Okay. Well, that's not a particularly simple question, but I guess <laughs> I could give it a try. So if I look back in my life, I can point to several key moments where I didn't act and wished I had later because I had an idea and I talked to people about it and I got talked out of it too easily. And I said, oh yeah, I can see why that's not going to work. And I didn't trust myself when I thought there was sort of something that I had an insight. And I walked away from it and years later or weeks or months or years later, I find somebody else doing exactly that, making quite a lot of money doing it or at least making an impact. And I realized a lot of things that are innovative are people who see something and realize they could improve something, even if it seems marginal to them at the time, particularly in areas where there doesn't seem like there's a lot of room for improvement and they don't do it. But the ones that do it, you know, it's the people who take a chance and give it a try and take a risk to do something a new way or to do something different. I mean, that's the largest part of innovation, I guess, for me. And so whenever I think about being innovative, whenever I have an idea that I think is good, I still solicit advice from people I trust. But if I feel strongly about it, then I still just I just go ahead and give it a try anyway. That's a fantastic response. And uh, I've actually heard a number of uh, leading innovators not say exactly word for word, but absolutely taking that chance, taking that risk. And if you believe in it enough, and even if your trusted advisors say, no, I wouldn't do that, and they do it anyway, and they make it work. 
Um, and I, I think that that's, that's quite a powerful message. And uh, I suppose that's got us on the subject. And I'm really sort of interested in this whole sort of the autonomous ship and uh, just for, uh, I suppose, our audience and those that people probably won't be aware of this project and, and how fascinating it is, you've led the collaboration between Promare, which I believe is a not-for-profit marine company, and IBM, which we're familiar with, with a lot of our listeners, which is also a world-leading tech company. And you led the project to build the world's first fully autonomous ship, which the plan is to cross the Atlantic using artificial intelligence, automation, I think some machine learning in there as well, edge computing, probably a few other bits and bobs that I haven't quite picked up, which I'm sure you'll be able to share with us. But first of all is, how did this project come along and how did you get involved in such an exciting project? Oh, well, yeah. So I, well, it's sort of, um, to be quite honest with you, it was sort of a hold my beer kind of thing. So in my day job, I lead a company that designs and builds manned and unmanned underwater vehicle systems and technology for generally for the military, but sometimes for oil and gas and sometimes for um, organizations that conduct research. And I myself come from an oceanographic research background, which is really where my heart is, I guess. And I get to work with some really clever people and I get to learn every day and that's always fun. But I lead this little company and we're doing all sorts of stuff over over many, many years in developing technology, sort of bespoke exotic technology for really sticky problems. We're sort of the go-to guys for something when someone would tell you, oh, everybody else says, no, you can't do that. You would give us a buzz and we would build one or at least give it a good shot, right? So I was meeting with people here in Plymouth, which is where I live now. And we were talking, I don't remember what we were meeting about. It was something to do with technology or development in the city. And we were waiting for the meeting to start and we were just kind of yammering about what was going to happen in 2020. And I, I hadn't really given that a lot of thought, oddly enough. And so it was like 16, 20, 2020, and they, what's going to happen at Mayflower 400? And somebody said, oh, well, maybe we should build a replica and sail it across and have it as a training ship. And I thought, well, that's, that's maybe not a good idea. And, you know, we've already done that. There's England, you know, gifted that exact thing, the Mayflower 2 to the United States, the city of Plymouth, Massachusetts, uh, you know, in the, in the mid fifties. So I said, well, that's, that's kind of not a great idea. And I was indelicate and I shouldn't have been, and I was a little more direct than that's not a good idea because the little man between my brain and my mouth was sleeping. <laughs> and, uh, they said, okay, well, you, what, what, what's your idea then? And, and I had been thinking about a lot of this stuff kind of swirling around in my head, working on various projects and thinking about automation and robotics and autonomy and manned systems and unmanned systems and where the limits are and where the value is and wanting to do more oceanographic research with Promare, the foundation that I helped found 20 years ago as well. And I said, well, we should just, you know, we should definitely do something that speaks to the next 400 years of the maritime enterprise. We shouldn't be thinking about looking back. We should look forward 400 years from now, when people look back at this moment, what is it we want them to think? What is it we want our future to look like? And for me, that's autonomy and very sophisticated sort of automation and autonomy and AI. So let's build an autonomous ship and you know Mayflower autonomous ship. And it'll sail from Plymouth to Plymouth and then it will sail all around and we'll do all this great research and, you know, kind of world leading, world beating kind of thing. And everybody sort of was like, oh, okay, great. That's so uh, you should do that. And, uh, you know, it, it kind of picked up speed. We started doing some fundraising. We did some crowdfunding. We did a little bit of work with... Um, all sorts of different organizations and giving presentations and hired a naval architect to get some concepts together. And then someone at IBM saw it and 
thought it was super cool and poured some technology on us. And it was of great assistance and it's been an invaluable, fantastic uh, partnership. At the outset of it, you know, we, we really weren't sure that we could do it at all. I mean, we knew we could build a boat. We understand how to build boats and boats break. And in fact, Mayflower broke on its first attempt to cross, right? But not the AI side, but the, the boat part. And that happens. The ocean is very hostile and boats are complicated. Although an unmanned vessel is significantly less complicated than a manned vessel because the preponderance of the design and the engineering effort and the fabrication effort in a traditional vessel, a manned research vessel, are all about keeping humans alive in a hostile environment. When you take the humans out, you take out all the things that humans need. It becomes a much more simple machine, at least. But then when you have to automate it all, it becomes quite challenging. But yeah, we thought, why not? Let's do that and let's see where the limits are. And IBM helped us think through what that meant and how to build what we would call a Captain Watson, but we now call the AI Captain, and make it a reality. And I guess when we started this five years ago, we we didn't we weren't sure we could actually fit the computing resource that we would need to do this uh, in the ship. And then now, just in the last few months, when we had to return back to Plymouth and make repairs and we're about to start out to sea again, just in that period of time, we've been able to double the compute power on the ship just because we felt like it was a good thing to do. Uh, and it all fits in and you could literally pick it all up and walk away with it. You know, we're right on the cusp of a lot of really interesting technology emerging. And it's just, we get to do all sorts of great things. We get to do computer science and AI and machine learning. And we get to, you know, look at how automation and autonomy, what does that really mean? What does it mean to have people, you know, remotely? How do you move data around? We have to work with satellite comms. How do we have situational awareness? How do we do all these kinds of research? How do we get all these instruments automated and working and reliable and robust so that we can send them out to sea along with the ship and collect this meaningful data. And then the data itself becomes information right at the edge with the sort of edge computing that we were able to, to deploy with the help of IBM. And then, you know, now it's, it's a pretty important asset in terms of being a template for the future of data collection at sea, which is, you know, really important when we start thinking about climate change and mitigating strategies and really understanding how our planets. And I'm rambling on and on, so you have to stop me. <laughs> no, it's fascinating. I absolutely uh, lo- love listening to it. And, and I say, I've watched the uh, the series on the IBM website, The Enchanted, I believe it's called. Yeah. I've been following that, and that's fascinating. And uh, just sort of adding on to that, you know, we're, we're all aware, obviously, that, that the sea is an unforgiving place, but it's also constantly moving and constantly changing, which I suppose makes it even more challenging um, than, than probably a, an autonomous car in some way. And I, I did pick up on the um, on, on the series that I watched that you know some of the challenges not only the computing to actually move the thing forward but obviously you've got a lot of science equipment on board to look at uh, the research which is uh, fascinating. And I think Steve, you, you had a question in terms of um, that side of things. Yeah, Ian. So obviously the where, this bit where IBM come in with the with the AI and it's it's like a brave marriage, isn't it? Bringing that AI into marine life and I'm often a bit cynical and sometimes the hype around AI is more than the reality. I just wondered, Brett, if what were your views on AI before that you started on this project? You know, were you cynical? Were you a fan? And, and has that view changed over time? I think what's really important when you start thinking about AI and then other words that I would use when I think about it from a marine context is or from my business context is I've said the word automation. And, and autonomy. So automation is all around us. It's ubiquitous in our daily life. And modern society is built on highly sophisticated automated systems, which underpin 
or automated and robotic systems, you could say, which underpin the modern world we live in. Like a perfect example is like traffic control systems. Can you imagine a major city now or a major highway um, where there's a man standing on a box at an intersection with different colored placards holding, you know, I mean, it's just not possible, right? So now we've automated all that stuff. And, you know, there's so much infrastructure that falls under automation. And so we do automation really well. And in fact, if you peel back different, like the layers of technology on Mayflower as you went down into the, you know, mechanical and electrical, as opposed to from the software and the virtualization of things, you would run into devices that you might find in an elevator, you know, controlling elevators or sprinkler systems or traffic systems, right? Or sophisticated manufacturing facilities, right? So all that's in there. And that's really important because you can't really have, well, how am I going to say this? You can't really have AI without those in a deployable, contextual, narrow AI way without that. So you can have an AI that sort of, or machine learning system that's designed to reduce data to information, um, vast troves of data to produce sort of results that happens. And you can have that sort of an artificial or augmented. I like to think of it as augmented intelligence because it's really about helping us be better at what we do and unburdening humans from the tasks that would occupy us almost ad infinitum and would prevent us from applying our insight and creativity, which is really important. That's why it's an augmented kind of thing. But what we wanted was an AI that was out in the world and and it did a very specific thing, which was safely navigate and help us get more information about the climate. So we needed robotics. And so when I think about AI, I, I think about it as a total, a completely integrated thing from the mechanics and the electrical to the electronics up into the automation and then sophisticated automation and then into sort of the, the machine learning based or the uh, AI, for lack of a better word, based sort of behaviors and perception and behaviors and reaction and then coupled with that data collection. And for me, it's sort of a, it's, it's a spectrum of things. And I think it's really easy to think about AI as a monolithic thing, like, I don't know, HAL 9000, right? On, and you know, it's very easy to think about it that way, or even to think about it in a way as, as, as Watson, right? Like you see it on Jeopardy. And that sort of obfuscates the reality of what these things are. And we, we don't do a good job talking to people. And one of the hallmarks of Mayflower, which I think is really fascinating philosophically, is that it's been a great tool for talking to people about AI. And in many ways, this completely unmanned vessel has humanized AI in a way that is surprising, right? People feel something about the ship. They root for it as if it were alive. You know, we, we talk about it like a person. And people tend to do this with objects, with cars, right? With things that move in particular, but historically boats, right? For millennia. And so now that the AI is in it, we get like sort of a free pass from all the negative side, the political, you know, politicization and and fear mongering about AI and general AI, strong AI, whatever you want to call it, which, you know, for the last 75 years have been 70, has been at least a hundred years away. And I don't expect to get any closer anytime soon. So what we're talking about is a very contextualized, very narrow deployment of a collection of deterministic and non-deterministic programs and algorithms, robotics, mechanical and electrical systems and sensors and communications that trying to put a circle around the AI captain and say, this is part of it that makes it work. And this technology isn't possible in many ways, like a living thing. Yeah, I was thinking of that, but when you were talking about it, sort of the brain without parts of the body and all the mechanics that put it together. But 
it's a really interesting answer because what I'm almost regretting sort of singling out the AI now and saying, what do you think of this bit? Because as you've rightly said, each bit on its own is not the full story. You know, it's the sum of the parts, isn't it? But again, what you said about bringing AI to the conversation in something tangible that we can all see and sort of get behind and support, I think I think that's a real interesting platform to go on and talk about AI further. So yeah, I, I love that answer. I really appreciate that. Brett. Yeah, no, fascinating stuff. And uh, I suppose for me, just to sort of divert slightly, I suppose uh, one of the things you talked on before was in terms of the investment that, that had obviously gone into the project and, you know, crowdfunding, etc. In general, in obviously marine technology, is investment coming into these technologies from marine commerce and defence sectors? Is that then helping marine research or is it the other way around? Oh, wow, that's a tough one. It's symbiotic, I would say. But I think it's kind of an interesting problem with what we do within this particular context of the Mayflower Autonomous Ship. You know, I had looked at starting a company to build automated vessels or autonomous vessels for a long time. And we've made a few for for, for automated things, not truly autonomous, right? Um, Which is what we wanted to do with Mayflower. And it's very hard. You know, there are a couple of companies now, really incredibly well-heeled billionaire-led companies that are building fleets of you know, robotic boats that are remotely piloted, that are very sophisticated, that probably use some machine learning and AI, and to some extent that I don't know, that I don't even know. And they have a commercial intent, but I don't see the the uptake. I, I can't see the argument. You know, and so when you start looking at it, you say, well, is it you know should it go on a container ship? It's like eh, probably not. Not the AI. It, it, removing the last few people. It doesn't make economic sense when you look at the total value of the ship, right? Itself it doesn't make any sense. And then when you start looking at very, very small vessels, you say, well, should I put it on air and get rid of the people? And it's like, well, you know, it's just easier and it's fine. And maybe it, you don't need it, right? So sometimes it's hard to overcome the good enough, right? So it's easy if you're a hammer to think everything's a nail. So there's the good enough factor at some scale too. And then, you know, of course, the military has a very deep interest in this. Uh, and there are some ethical dilemmas with it, I suppose. But I think there's a more profound ethical dilemma with AI beyond jobs, which we could talk about in a little bit. And, you know, so then you start looking at it and the natural places for it are sort of research, oceanographic, meteorological, climatological, environmental research, space research, big data reduction. I tend to be a guy who wants to do applied research in the field. I want to go get the data, make it into information and be out there in the mess of it. I'm not a guy who is interested in taking somebody else's massive data set and reducing it. I like the totality of the problem, but that's just me. So where the uptick in this is very narrow, it's weirdly, I think the first place this is going to go really commercially viable ways implemented things that we're implementing on a fully autonomous unmanned vessel will be implemented on manned vessels to help them stay safe, whether that be military or commercial or private, because, you know, we, we've been having shipwrecks for quite a long since we've been making ships and we're making much better ships and they're much safer than they've been ever. And they continue to improve both through material science and good engineering and good weather forecasting and codes of practice that require you to build ships in a sound manner that, that don't always translate well for autonomous vessels. In fact, not at all in some cases, in my opinion. And we, we don't even have rules for these things yet. We don't have regulations for these things yet. You know, I like it because it's, it touches implementing these kinds of things, pushes on all these soft spots. And that's what Mayflower does. It's sort of instead of having an esoteric discussion about, well, if and when one of these things occurs, 
I suppose we'll deal with it. It's like, well, here it is and it's working. And so how are we going to deal with that? And, you know, we've had some arguments with regulatory authorities who didn't want us to use the ship. But in our opinion, under the law, they it wasn't what they thought it was. And they needed to come up with some rules. So we need to help. So technology is going to lead there. But where the uptake is, I don't know. I mean, it's I think it's going to go quick, but I, I think it might weirdly be in helping people be safer as opposed to replacing people. Automation's doing a pretty good job of that. And I'm not particularly afraid of that either. I think one of the biggest problems we have in society is we do a pretty bad job educating people in basic sciences and math, and that's bad. And then I think we overemphasize a higher level of education in university that doesn't necessarily produce people that are equipped to work in a world that is this, that may become as automated as it does. And, and you can argue about whether we should. But I think the bigger philosophical concern is that AI is becoming a thing. And more so just, I think that the the division between the people who create technology and the people who utilize technology is going to be far more concern in the future than a lot of the ideas we have about jobs being replaced by robots. At least I think that'll be the sort of new class division. And I worry about that. Um, and I worry about it with AI too, because it, it will, the ability to exploit that technology will also be a defining thing in their hierarchy, hierarchical ranking of societies. And it's it's something we should think about a little bit. Fascinating stuff. Just one thing, very, very quick question. And uh, and I, I did find it interesting, the fact that one of the challenges that you had was that regulational issue because you weren't allowed to test the, the boat out on the open sea because that was against the rules. But you, I think your argument was that those rules are made for things of the past, not for the things of the future. And how do you innovate if there's no rules to to guide them. Yeah, I mean, my argument was actually that we are completely within the rules. And you're asking us to conform to ad hoc rules that aren't codified in any way and have no standards. So my argument was beyond that. I, my argument was, I've read the rules, we comply. The fact that we don't have any people on board, uh, we understand could be of concern. But where in the rules does it say a ship has to? And they said, well, it has to be under command. It's like, but it is. Yeah. You know, and then they would say things like, but but it has to have the comparable ability to detect, to, to keep a lookout, to keep a watch. It's like, but it does. In fact, it's far better than people. Uh, well, uh, w- w- how do we validate that? I'm like, I don't know, publish a standard. Uh, how do you validate it with people? Well, they don't, right? There's nobody going around checking the eyesight of the person keeping a watch. Right. So it's like, so it's sort of like, well, you don't. So it's like, uh, well, it has to have a load waterline certificate or an exemption therefrom. I said, well, it's under the international law. It doesn't. And even in UK, it's exempt, generally de facto exempt from the requirement of a load waterline certificate. So why would it need an exemption from something it doesn't need a certificate for? Moreover, load waterline certificates are really intended for boats with people on them to determine that they're safely floating. There are no people on this boat. And it wasn't commercial, which means it's also not subject to that law. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a non-commercial venture. So it's, and it's, it's actually flagged as a pleasure craft because there is no category for research vessel. And so it took a while, but we got sorted out. I think we're on a good path with that now. And, you know, but it's something that people are going to have to deal with. You know, I, as I said once before to somebody, I said, wouldn't it be a sad world if all the regulations for any future innovative or technological endeavor had to be in place before you made them. Absolutely. Steve, I think you, you picked up on a Henry Ford comment on that, didn't you? Yeah, I think Henry Ford said, if I'd have asked the people what they wanted, they'd have said faster horses. 
he went off and built a car instead. But I think that that compliance and regulation thing, we could do an hour on that alone easily. But I wanted to bring it back, Brett, what you were saying about the sort of um, the implications and the knock on effect of benefits around marine research and that area. I think that's what a lot of people can really sort of buy into. And that's where our interest comes in. It's great if there's investment and developments for marine commerce and defence. But let's talk about this sort of greater good and the marine research side that people are going to be interested in. And I, I was given a bit of thought to that. And I've got this whole sort of human technology versus nature battle going on. And I'm, tr- I'm trying to decide whether... What you're doing is in harmony with nature to enhance the research, and and that is the element of greater good. But on the other hand, I feel like it's a battle against nature because what you're trying to overcome to achieve what you want to do must feel like a, a real fight at times because of that hostile environment that you spoke about earlier. So, you know, where in the battle is it about the greater good and where is it about overcoming the, the might of the ocean? Well, okay, so uh, that's an interesting question. Uh, first of all, there's no such thing as overcoming the might of the ocean. Um, that that is is not possible. So you know, you you work to the best of your ability with the ocean. No one's built a ship yet that uh, can take anything the ocean throws at it. So you just you plan, you design, you build, you try to use your experience and best practices, and you know you pick your moments. I mean, you don't sail out into a hundred foot sea just because well, there's nobody there. Let's lose the ship. But there's no overcoming the ocean. And I don't actually think about it as a battle. I mean, it's an endeavor, I guess. I mean, fighting the ocean, it's like fighting the wind. You're not going to win. And it's not a fight, right? We're trying to extract really important data from the ocean. And it's perfectly happy to give it to us if we can be smart enough to put the machines or the technology or the people there to get it. It doesn't care. I mean, the ocean, just like an AI, it doesn't have any feelings about what we're doing. Um, it's not a malevolent force, and it's certainly not a battle, because it, even if we were to cast it that way, we would absolutely 100% lose. And it's really more about a symbiosis, because we're trying to to be good shepherds of it. But, you know, I wanted to just jump back to, I think you mentioned a comparison with automobiles, and I think it's a really interesting point to bring out. So automobiles are really unique, and I don't think it's a particularly apt comparison when people make it, I always point it out, because... Automobiles or cars, whatever, they exist in a highly structured, prepared environment. Our entire modern society is built around this particular mode of transportation for people and goods. And the governments are trying to change that, and they're going to struggle because we've got a century or more of development around this thing. And it's going to be a fight to do it. It's going to just be hard. That's fine. But cars are meant to be in and around and amongst people or people in them at almost all times. And they move at significant velocity. But they have the benefit of uh, sophisticated, robust, high bandwidth comms, mostly where they move. And they also have people directly on site with very low latency to, to intercede. So it's a very different thing in the ocean. In the ocean, even though it's perceived as more dangerous in some people to by some people to do what we do, the reality is that things happen very slowly, right? So the boats move at a much slower rate of speed than cars do. And unlike cars, they're not constrained in the in the direction that they travel. A boat, generally, it's forward, back, left, right, uh, up and down is not always a good thing unless you're a submarine or an airplane. But, <laughs> and, but you're free to maneuver in any way you wish and to turn in any way you wish. And the likelihood that you'll encounter a person, even in a, in a harbor, is much, 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 much lower than it is with a car in a city, right? Or even in a small town. So 
uh, and particularly out in the deep blue ocean, there's nothing to hit out there, generally speaking. And so it's you have some pluses in favor of it, but then you have the struggle with it. the ranges are vast. And so you have issues with communications and bandwidth and the ocean itself is, is challenging. It's a very hostile environment. And the stakes for failure are high, I suppose, but the likelihood that you'll kill somebody, which is really what we should worry about, is, is very, very low, if not zero. So it's, it's a really weird thing to compare. And yet, you know, when we started doing this, a lot of people were unnerved. Uh, you know, some people were, so how did you get permission to do this? This is very dangerous. It's like, why? And I, and I think it's because even though every single person on the planet in some way depends on the ocean, right? Well, it does for climate, but just like 90% of our trade is at sea, right? So it's absolutely vital, right? To everyone, period. Most people don't spend a lot of time in it or on it. And I think that they have a romanticized atavistic view of what the ocean or what it's like to be on a ship, like maybe, you know, maybe not HMS Bounty uh, with uh, Marlon Brando, but maybe <laughs> Das Boat, right? But it's it's sort of out of step with sort of a slightly behind the technology curve view when the reality is that ships have been at the forefront of every emerging technology from the beginning of time, right? I mean, ships are incredibly sophisticated technological things that are a microcosm of the state of technology in any society. When you think about the material science, the corrosion inhibitors, the navigation systems that are required, the propulsion, the life support, I mean, all of it, right? Right at the edge. And I think why that is obfuscated as well as because people are a little bit separated from it and see it as something a little bit romanticized is because ships, unlike cars, have an extremely long life. So it's unusual to find a car 50 years old. There, There's plenty around, but it's still kind of unusual. But it's not unusual to find a 50-year-old boat. And so they get upgraded to some degree over time, but there's a, a huge range of variegation in terms of the size, the purpose, and the value, the cost of the vessel down from a dinghy all the way up to a super tanker that you don't see in the automobile industry in terms, just in terms of magnitude. And so that coupled with long lifespans, particularly for the very expensive systems, because you're not going to build a billion dollar ship that you throw away in five years. It has a tendency to mask the level of technology and the level of safety present in the modern day sort of marine enterprise. And so there's a little bit of disconnect. And I hope that Mayflower is also helping to bridge that a little. I think making that differentiation between the implication of this technology in marine versus road transport's really fascinating. And I think it's all the more impressive for us to learn that you can't just lift that technology from autonomous cars and stick it on the water because the variables are completely different. So I think it's a really valid thing to drill down into there. And uh, yeah, it's uh, it's a lot of food for thought. It really is fascinating. So I, I just wanted to move us along and sort of we've given AI its voice and we've talked a lot about the technology, but obviously there's that human element to this as well. And I think you mentioned earlier when we were talking about weighing up, putting AI into boats, that there's some things that people really are better at. So aside from that technical story, there's a huge collaboration aspect to the project that you're doing. So many different organizations, obviously lots of different people to coordinate. How's that gone? Is that something that humans are still excelling at? Is there particular methods that you've used to bring everybody together? Or or has that been the biggest headache of all? 
No, it's been the best part of the entire program. And I, again, it's it's the irony in this project, right? My favorite part of the whole project is the people I've had the great pleasure to work with on our team, both in my company and at IBM and all the various government agencies and regulatory authorities and supporters and sponsors and technologists and instrument developers. It is without a doubt on a project that's working in with an autonomous sort of AI machine learning driven ship on which there are no people, the best part of the project is the people. So I like that. I mean, that's really, it's been wonderful. And we didn't deploy any other tools other than we said yes a lot. Because the project has no commercial motive, I tell people we're return on investment agnostic, <laughs> right? So we say yes, if at all possible, to anything. It lets people sort of feel like they have agency within the program. I mean, sometimes we have to say no or we have to prioritize, but... I mean, realistically, we, we have a very clear mission. We have a very clear ethos. We have a fundamental set of goals that we allow to expand. We're not precious about them. And while I happen to be the director at the moment, it, it, it's a very open kind of program. And I mean, there's thousands of people involved. I don't talk to all of them, but across IBM, there's many, many, many hundreds. And there's many, many, many hundreds of people who've contributed financially or in kind, you know, like the folks at Turnchapel Wharf providing our home port and services for free, a place to have the ship and just anything you can imagine like that. I don't know, it sort of restored my faith in people a little bit, hmm. but because we weren't looking to hoard intellectual property, we weren't looking to monetize this in particular, and we had a very focused, clear mission, we could say yes to all sorts of things that we didn't say yes to before or that we might have thought twice about or I don't know. Yeah, just it was easy. And we, we've been incredibly lucky. Either we've been incredibly lucky with the people that have gotten involved because the type of person that gets interested in this sort of venture is of a type that we can work amenably with. Or the reality, more probably, is most people are just generally nice. And if they're given an opportunity to do something interesting, they take it. Both are good. Yeah. It's amazing what you can do when you strip back some of those restrictions. But like you say, there's people are going to have a certain passion for it on so many different levels, the greater good, the implications, just the fact that it's a whole lot of fun as well. And I'm glad you've sort of given a shout out for everybody involved. And it, it really is that human plus tech versus nature. It's really humans plus tech plus nature all working together. So yeah, I, I just think it's uh, it's such a good story. I've eaten up so much of your time with those questions and oh, uh, fine, yeah, some of them uh, could go really deep. I say that because no one told me I can't use a marine pun. But Ian, I'd, I'd, I'd give it back to you. I don't want to take up all the time. Oh dear. Um, you have to get one in there, didn't you, Steve? I suppose following on, on from that, you, you've obviously contributed a, a lot of time to the project. Would you describe yourself as a marine engineer, a technologist, an adventurer, a scientist, or all of the above? No, I, I would describe, you'll laugh, my only actual degree qualification is I'm actually an anthropologist. Oh, wow. And I have found that to be incredibly useful. Yeah, I could imagine that. That's a fascinating subject in its own right. And uh, uh, yeah, probably way beyond my qualification to uh, to engage with you about that. But um, Well, I don't know. I, I would say if you want me to characterize where to, how I am or what, I, I'm incredibly lucky. I have the great good fortune to be able to get up every day and go to work with a building full of people who are smarter than me that I get to learn from. And in large part, put their egos aside and I get to do things like build submarines and go underwater and play with satellite technology and then build autonomous ships and 
learn about AI and meet all sorts of different people with different interests and different desires and address sticky technical problems and ethical problems and philosophical problems. And, you know, that's a, 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 every day is a, a good day if that continues. So I guess I'm just lucky. Absolutely. I'd say so. And uh, I think any job where you're constantly learning and you've got people around you that are also constantly learning, I think that's a good place to be. That's just just my opinion. I, I suppose just toning the thing down because I'm conscious of of your, your time, Brett. I, I suppose coming to something a little bit more simplistic, we've talked a lot about technology and you know covered a lot of things. Just out of sheer interest, what is your favorite tech gadget? Wow, I don't know. Um, I'm a big fan of the good old fashioned book, and to me, that's the ultimate tech gadget. Yeah, that's a great answer. Yeah, absolutely, and. Lastly, a question, and uh, I don't know if you're a sporting man or not. One of the things that uh, I normally ask our guests, particularly as you've been from over the pond, I normally ask our guests to uh, have a punt and have a guess and try and predict the um, top four for the English Premier League for the forthcoming season. My, my son could do it. I know he's really interested in the fact that Messi, Grealish, and Ronaldo have all been moving around lately. I think, you know, I know it's not Premier League. PSG is, I think, going to be a team to watch if they can get it all integrated. Manchester, I mean, they just keep getting stronger. But uh, I'll be honest with you, I'm not a sports guy. I'm more, of, I'm more interested in uh, uh, music and reading. I used to play basketball when I was a kid, but I, I just don't follow sports, believe it or not. <laughs> no, completely understand. And uh, it's just a question that we ask everybody. And obviously it's uh, a bit of fun to kind of end the uh, podcast on. And uh, Sometimes, Ian, them light questions are actually the most difficult questions. What's your favourite tech gadget? Come on, let's throw it back at you, Ian. Me? Oh, dear. I'd have to go with... Actually, I'll probably go with my iPad, yeah. I absolutely love that because uh, I can read on it. I learn a lot from my iPad. Yeah, definitely. It goes with me everywhere I go, pretty much. Yeah, it's a great tool for learning. And so, uh, Mine is the um, ability to remote control the climate control in my car to set it for a time you want to be the temperature you want and there's so many better things i'm sure on the car that that one's quite simple but yeah that's that's my favorite one for sure we don't all have flash cars like you steve <laughs> anyway brett a huge thanks for uh, taking the time out to speak to us today i'm going to be really really excited to follow the next episode of chartered on the ibm webpage and uh I suppose uh, wishing you and the team all the best of luck with it because it, it is a fantastic project. And thanks for bringing it to life for us today. I know there's a lot of people that uh, Steve and I speak to and some of the audiences will be fascinated by it. So uh, we'll be following you closely and wishing you well with the future with the project. So thank you. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure and feel free to follow up anytime. I, uh, I can be loquacious, so give me the opportunity and I will regale you with stories. Great, lovely. Now, we'd love to hear from you again. It's been, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Brett. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of ASM Connected, the podcast from ASM Technologies with guest Brett Fanouf. If you've enjoyed this episode, subscribe now to make sure you never miss an update and check out the other episodes in the series featuring key speakers, futurists and business leaders from across the globe. And if you want to find out more about the team at ASM Technologies or about anything discussed in the podcast, visit asmtech.com. This is ASM Connected.